Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. All right, we're going to continue a series today that we started a couple of weeks ago called The Origin Story of Christmas. Now, last week we started kind of talking about this conversation that the angel came to bring. And I want to kind of continue that, that there are these angel conversations, these angel announcements that were going on at that first Christmas. And we typically, when we think about angels at Christmas, we think about the shepherds. We talked about those a little bit last week. We think about Mary being visited by an angel. But sometimes we forget that Joseph also got visited by an angel in a dream. He had an angelic dream visit, all right? And we learned three things from this recorded conversation in his dream that we get nowhere else in terms of the first time it's ever mentioned in the New Testament is found right here in Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Three things, and here are the three things, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is human, and that Jesus has come to be with us. Let's take a look at that conversation because there are some phenomenal insights given to us in this short passage. It says this, this is This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, before they came together, of course, means before they were intimate with one another, that she had uh, been pregnant with the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her publicly. Now, you might be saying, why are they getting divorced if they're just engaged or not really married yet? Well, back then in that Jewish culture, to be engaged was much like being married already, only you didn't live together and you didn't have sex, okay? And this was a commitment that your families were making, and in order to break that commitment, you had to publicly divorce the other person. And this is what he's thinking about. It's what he's contemplating. I mean, his fiance has shown up pregnant, okay? So you have to give him a little slack. He's trying to figure out what to do. But after he had considered this, let's say it together, an angel, as we talked about, angel from the Greek word angelos, which means messenger, a messenger of the good news. He's not an advisor. He's a messenger. We talked about the difference last week. A messenger of the Lord appears to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the, let's say it together, from the Holy Spirit. Okay, he's saying that this child that's within her is not from a human person. This is not from a human daddy. This is from your heavenly Father. Make no mistake about it. He goes on to say this, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name, let's say it together, the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, and to which I'm sure Joseph is thinking, he doesn't say it out loud, why are we naming him Jesus, the Lord saves? Well, the angel immediately answers the question, because, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, and this is the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this is what he said, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him, let's say it together, they will call him 
Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is a power-packed passage of Scripture, and I'm so thankful that Matthew records it for us to be able to know these things. And now, this is an interesting idea, this whole idea of Emmanuel, this doctrine or this theological idea, this prophecy, if you will, behind it was something that the Jewish scholarly religious community knew about for centuries. But they had always written about it and thought about it being fulfilled in a figurative way. They would always write about it in such a way that they thought that God would raise up a great leader and through the leadership of this great leader of God, that there would be a figurative sense that God would be with his people. This is what they thought. This is Matthew showing us that God's promise here is greater than anyone imagined. That he wasn't looking to fulfill this figuratively, he was looking to fulfill it literally. Literally. And, and what's even more shocking is the fact that this was all being written about a, by a Jewish man about a Jewish man. The Jews of all people groups on planet earth, especially at this time in history, were the least likely people hear me, the least likely people to believe that God could or would come and kind of lower himself down to be among sinful people and come and manifest himself as a human being. They just didn't believe and ever thought that that sort of thing would happen. Now, Eastern religions, yes, they were open to it. They believed that God was this impersonal force that just kind of permeated everything, and at times, God might manifest the divine, this kind of impersonal force would manifest the divine um, qualities maybe in a person. The, the Western religions were similar. They were also open to it. They believed in all kinds of deities, all kinds of gods that were not omnipotent. In other words, they were none, none of them were all powerful, but that they liked to come and disguise themselves as human beings. The Greeks really believed this, that you could be walking down the street, I pass you, and you could be Zeus incognito. That's exactly what they thought, that the, the gods could be hiding among us, among people. That's what they thought. The Jews, however, absolutely not. The Jewish understanding of God, their worldview was God was so holy, he was so other, they would not even say the name of God, Yahweh, out loud. They wouldn't even spell it. They wouldn't write it down, let alone believe that somehow God would come to earth to be a human being. This is what makes Jesus so extraordinary, because through Jesus' life, his claims about himself and his resurrection, his miracles... He convinces his closest friends, his closest followers, his family that he's not only that, that he's not a Jewish prophet that's come to just help them define God. He convinces them that he is God in the flesh come to find them. This is what he convinces them of. And that Jewish man, Jewish man after Jewish man in the New Testament, writer after writer is explicitly telling us that they believe that Jesus was not just a great rabbi, a great prophet, a great moral teacher, that he was and is God in the flesh. The apostle John, raised as a Jew, he tells us in John chapter 1, in his gospel, verses 1 through 3, John's the only one that refers to Jesus as the logos or as the word. And this metaphor he's using here is to show us that Jesus is the revealer, 
He has come to reveal who God really is. He's come to show us who God really is. And he says it this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And get this, and the Word was God, one and the same. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. He's the Creator God, and without Him nothing was made that was made. John's saying, make no bones about it. He's not your average human being. He is God in the flesh. The Apostle Paul, who before he was an apostle, was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was a Jew among Jews. And one of the most staunch, legalistic Jews that there were in the world. And he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And he makes an unbelievable statement in his letter to the church in Colossae. Chapter 2, verse 9, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, he says this, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Can you believe that? A Jewish man. I know in our culture, in our world today, we're not stunned by this, but that is truly remarkable for a man like him, at his intellect, his level of stature within that community, to throw all of that away and say, I'm going to follow Jesus because he is the fullness of God in a human body. And he has convinced me of this. And the disciple Peter becomes later an apostle as well. As well. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he tells us, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He continues to call Jesus God, our God and Savior. He comes to save us from our sins. This is who he is. This is what we've accepted. This is what we've placed faith in. This is what we believe. This is what we're willing to die for. Unbelievable level of commitment, love, and obedience. And it wasn't just them. They got it from Jesus himself. Jesus continually said, I and the Father are one. He did things only God could do. He'd say, your sins are forgiven. As if to say, I, the sins are forgiven because I say they are. Because I just forgave them. Okay? Only God could do that. He does miracle after miracle. He tells people things like, I'm going to go on ahead of you to heaven, and I will prepare a place for you. People can't do that for one another, right? He says, and someday I'm going to return. There will be a second coming of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. Just like people weren't ready or expecting or looking for the first coming, they're going to be caught off guard by the second coming. So be ready, prepared. Jesus promised these things over and over. And people, not by the hundreds, by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, begin to follow, trust, believe, worship Him, pray in His name. And He was cool with this. That's what He wanted. He says, that is in keeping with who I am, right? If He was just a man, that would have been sadistic, crazy, and evil to do to people. He wasn't just a man. And, and we live in a day when there's a lot of people that say, oh yeah, I get that concept. I understand that Jesus was both God and man, and that's the claim about him. But the ramification of that, the consequences of that being true have not really played out in their life. We, we really haven't thought about what is that really supposed to look like, the consequences in terms of its application in our life. To put it another way, if Jesus is really God, what does that mean for us today? What, what should it be doing in our life? Because this idea of the incarnation, the incarnation, if it's true, then it makes all the other miracles possible. Let me give you a definition of the incarnation, just in case you're a little vague on that whole idea. The incarnation 
Simply put, is the omnipotent creator. Omnipotent is a big theological word for all-powerful, okay? Omnipotent creator of the universe took on a human nature without loss of his deity, his godness, right? He didn't lose his godness. So he was both fully human and divine. He was both a man and God at the same time. That's what the incarnation is. And here's the, here's the interesting thing about this. That theologians for centuries have said, this is the most staggering claim of Christianity, even more than the resurrection of Jesus, because if this, ladies and gentlemen, is not true, you don't have a resurrection. If he's not who he says he is, he can't pull off what he says he's going to pull off. He can't do that. It was really interesting. I came across a passage recently by Dr. J.I. Packer, who is an incredible thinker, theologian, writer, that was writing about this concept in his book, Knowing God. And he says this about the incarnation, brilliant insight. He says, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than just lie, stare, wriggle, and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. And he goes on to make the point. He says, I hear people after people saying, I just don't know, Dr. Packer, if I can believe in the miracles. I don't know if I can believe that Jesus walked on water and he fed all those people and he healed all those people. I don't know if I can believe in the atonement that one man's death could cover over the sins of literally billions and billions of people. He says, but once you get this, once you get the incarnation, once you begin to understand that, that all the other faith hurdles begin to fall. Consider this question right here. Think about it like this. If there's a God and he has become human, why would you find it incredible that he would do miracles, pay for the sins of the world, and rise from the dead? Right? If God truly came to earth, and this is what I believe, this is what many of us believe, this is what the, the New Testament writers died for. If he truly did, then doing miracles is like, that is way easier to do than what he did, right? That's way easier. And, and doesn't it just make sense that he would come to pay for the sins of the world so that we could be with him, to be united with him? And it, it's, it's truly fascinating to see how all of this comes to pass in the New Testament. And I think the thing that kind of is shocking for all of, well, I think as we understand this idea of Emmanuel, the thing that because of our culture today that, that gets lost on us sometimes, that we don't fully feel the impact of, we're not stunned by the fact that God has come to earth. We're not stunned by the fact that God has come to be among us, to be with us because of the time of history that we live in. But back in Old Testament historical moments within the Jewish community, anyone at any time who had an encounter with God, it was terrifying. They thought they would die. They would have to be reassured, you're not going to die. It's going to be okay. Breathe. You know, you're not having a heart attack. It's okay. They, they, continually. Um, Abraham 
saw God as a burning or smoldering furnace. Israel, the nation of Israel, saw him as a pillar of fire. Job saw him as lightning and fire falling from the heavens. We see even Moses is told that in your human form, if you saw God, it would kill you like that. But yet, when God shows up as Jesus, he's not a pillar of fire. He's a baby. Think about this for a second. Babies are so approachable, aren't they? There's not anything or anyone more approachable than baby. Babies are like perfectly the size to be held, to be kissed, to be, hold, you know, to be hugged, to be loved. They'll cling to you. They want that. They look forward to it. So the question is, why would God come this time as a baby rather than a pillar of fire, right? Why would he do that? What was the point? And here's the point, because this time he has not come to bear, to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment upon himself, to take on the sins of your life and mine, of all people, so that through him bearing our sin, paying for our sin, he could remove no other person, no other human, no other entity could do this, to remove the barrier between sinful humanity and holy God so that finally, once and for all, we can be with God, that we can enjoy an intimate, personal love relationship with the God of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. He makes that possible. That intimate relationship with Jesus requires something of us, though. It requires us to exercise some courage. And I want to talk about over the next couple of minutes, what does that courage look like? What are some three strategic and distinct areas of your life where really embracing Emmanuel in your life and in mine is going to require some courage of us, okay? Here's the first one. It's going to require us to have the courage to take on the world's ridicule, okay? Let me explain what I mean by that. Think about one of the first things that the angel said to Joseph in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Matthew. He says this, and if you would, let's read the highlighted word together. He says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. So the question is, what was he afraid of? What, what, what was causing all the fear and anxiety and stress in Joseph's life? What was the angel speaking to in his life? He was afraid of what people were going to say, right? He's this young, engaged guy with a pregnant fiance. He's trying to figure out, what in the world am I going to do? He's probably thinking, ladies, I'm sure you can understand this, but guys, you can really understand this. If you are trying to, uh, you knew that you were going to have to go back and be around your buddies, right? And your fiance has now shown up pregnant, right? They're going to probably confront you about it. Say, hey, bro, hey, either you sinned and you slept with her and got her pregnant before marriage, or she was unfaithful to you, right? There's only two choices. That's all, that's all there is. Can you imagine Joseph trying to explain the truth to them? Oh, wait a minute, guys. I, like, I can explain, okay? It's a situation where she just got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. I mean, <laughs> like, it's one of those deals, okay? And so they're going to be like, bro, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. 
Oh, my, my girlfriend's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, too. Is that what we're saying now? Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll jump on that bandwagon. They're not going to understand. They're going to either think he's crazy or gullible the rest of his life. They're just never going to get it. And what's beautiful about this moment with Joseph, it is a great picture of what every single individual person who tries to follow Jesus, who invites Jesus into the middle of their life, you will have, I have had and will have more moments like this where God is going to do something in your life. He's going to call you to do something, and you will have some people around you you love, care about, that are close to you, and they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand. It's going to sound crazy, cuckooville to them. They're not going to understand. So for Jesus to be in your life, take a cue from this Emmanuel moment for Joseph. Your social status may take a hit. Your reputation might take a hit to be obedient and follow Jesus instead of worrying about the ridicule you might accept or receive from the world around you. It takes courage. It takes bravery to embrace that kind of faith and to move from the nonchalant, I just attend occasionally when it works in my schedule, to I'm all in, Jesus. 2020, I'm all in. This Christmas, 2019, I'm all in. That's a whole different approach. And that's what Emmanuel calls us to. This moment in this origin story of Christmas is so much power than we give it credit for. Here's the second point of courage. We have to have the courage to give up your right to control, for me to give up my right to control. Now think about what's the next thing that the um, angel says to Joseph. He says, listen, you're going to have a son. Yay, for any Jewish man. Wow, it's a wonderful moment to hear. You're going to have a son. And you will name him Jesus. You're going to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You're going to name him Jesus because the Lord saves. Now, this may not sound like a big deal to us because we're not a Jewish man living in the first century, but in an ancient patriarchal society, this was a huge deal. They, they had the absolute right, Jewish men, to name their children, especially their sons, and especially their firstborn son. And for the angel to take this right away from Joseph is like the, the, the angel saying, listen, if Jesus is going to be in your, your life, you don't get to be his manager. He's going to be yours. And I hear people say this sometimes. I would love to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Will, but I do not want to be a follower of him if it means that I can't do X or I, I won't be allowed to do Y. In other words, oh yeah, I would love to have Jesus in my life, but I want to come on my terms. I want it to be according to my conditions. What are they doing in that moment? They're trying to name him. They're trying to say, I will be his Lord rather than him be mine. Or I'll try to co-Lord with him. That doesn't work. That's not what he came to bring. The angel says to all of us, you don't control him, he controls you. He's the Lord, and if you want to be with him, this is how you do it. You surrender everything to him. You, you, you drop your conditions, you drop all of your, 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 your you know, prerequisites, and you say, I need you, Jesus. I want to follow you, and I give it all over. And when we do that, we begin to do what Jesus says every person who wants to be a follower, every person that wants to be a disciple must do. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, here's what Jesus says. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must, let's say it together, must 
deny themselves. It's required. This is not optional. (laughs) It's implied in the Emmanuel, the incarnation, to come to Him, to be with Him. You must deny yourself. And the rest of that verse goes on to say, to pick up your cross daily and follow Him. It's a one-time commitment that's renewed day after day after day. You make the one commitment, yes, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life, forgive my sin, and I'm going to refresh that day after day, not because that somehow your salvation has diminished, if you don't every day, but it keeps it fresh on your mind to say, you know what, I made that commitment, I'm going to renew it every day. It's a daily commitment to pick up my cross, put Jesus first. He's my Lord, I am not my Lord. But this is one of the biggest rubs for people, that if we will fully surrender the control of our life to Him, incredible things begin to happen. One of the things that our heart yearns for most, to really know who we are, to really have our true identity unveiled to us, it only comes from surrender and obedience to Jesus. He's our creator God, and we find out who we really are in the proper submitted relationship to him to say, you are God, you are Lord, I am not, and that's so freeing. I follow you. I'm not asking you to co-lord with me. That doesn't even work. You don't get to be with him if you do that. That's not how you follow. And and I just encourage you today, maybe this has been a struggle in your life, and it's time today, as we get ready to go into the prayer time in a minute, to just say, Jesus, once and for all, I lay it all down, all my conditions, all my restrictions, all the things that I said, well, if only, and if I can do, and I can't, I want to do X, I want to do Y, and if I can, you're willing to say, nope, you're Lord, I'm not Lord. You're willing to follow Have the courage to give up control, give up the wheel of your life. And here's number three, the courage to admit you are a sinner. Number three, I have to begin by asking the question, do you remember his mission statement? The angel gives it to Joseph in verse 21. He says this, he says, he will save his people from their, let's say it together, from their their sins. Jesus says later, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. I've come to save people. If you're not willing to admit your loss, if you're not willing to admit you have sins, you don't think you need a Savior, right? Even if you actually do. There's an an element of self-deception that's going on. He goes on to say later, Jesus does in Matthew 22, he says, listen, uh, when when they're asking him, the Pharisees, all the religious elite, they're saying, so Jesus, tell us. Oh, wise one, they were always sarcastic. Why? Tell us what are the greatest commandment. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. As if to say, do you always love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? I don't. I wish I did. Do you always love your neighbor as yourself? I don't. I wish I did. Are you guilty of this? Every human being is. Jesus is showing us that we come before God honestly, gut level, soul level, honestly, I'm guilty before you, God, and before I need anything else from you, Jesus, I need forgiveness. I need to be made right with God. I need somebody that can wipe away and forgive and get rid of my sin. And there is no other place, there's no other one who can remove that sin barrier, that can make us one with God, then Jesus, this is why he came. This is why Christmas is such good news. 
This is why the incarnation can change the world and is, continues to do that every single day. But we have to come to a place where we're willing to say, God, I need your forgiveness. This takes courage. It takes bravery to admit that. And I hope today you will have that kind of courage and bravery. Now, you might be asking, where do I get that kind of courage? Where do you get this? Where does this courage come from? And the answer to this is, it comes from looking at Jesus himself. Because however much courage it takes us to be with Jesus, it takes infinitely more for him to be with us. He left the throne room of heaven to face unimaginable darkness, pain, suffering, and death so that you and I don't have to face unimaginable suffering, darkness, death. So we could be free. And he did not do this because it was his duty. He did this because he chose to, because he loves us. He wants to set us free. And that through faith in him, we can be, and we can be made right with God in one unison with God. We can be children of God. So I encourage you today to have the courage, the faith, the bravery to invite Jesus into the middle of your life. Here's the the prayer of application I'm asking you to pray with me today is simply saying, Jesus, thank you for coming to be my Emmanuel, God with us. I ask for the courage to face the world's ridicule, to give up control, and to admit my sin so that I can be forgiven. And no matter where you are in your faith journey in Jesus today, this is a relevant prayer. It's just to say, I want you at the center of my life. And anything, and I mean anything that is fighting for that center place in my life, that's making it hard for Jesus to occupy the center of your life, we need to, today, confess it. Say, Jesus, show it to me so I can remove it, so I can get it out of the way, so there's stop being competition, because I want to be with you. I don't want anything to impede my ability to experience you as Emmanuel. And today is the day that the implication, the power of this doctrine, this theological concept becomes alive and personal and real to every one of us if we're willing to be open to receive it. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.